Welcome to Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Sharon has a passion for scripture that will motivate and challenge you to immerse yourself in God's word and apply his message to your everyday life. Visit SeekingTruth.net to learn more about bringing Seeking Truth to your parish or to become an online learner. Today, it's part one of Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter one. And now, Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Hi, everyone. Welcome to our discussion of Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter one. Now, our first Pope, St. Peter, has something to say about his fellow apostle, St. Paul. It's in his very final exhortation when he says this, Our beloved brother Paul wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, speaking of this as he does in all his letters. There are some things in Paul's letters which are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, beware lest you be carried away with the error of lawless men and lose your own stability. So Peter's giving a warning about Paul. Don't let anyone twist Paul's message. Paul's letter to the Romans is his longest letter, 16 chapters. But remember, when Paul was writing, there were no chapter divisions. It would have been one long parchment. And please remember that Paul can start an argument in one chapter or pose a question, but not answer it until a later chapter. Very very helpful when we hear Paul read out loud. Very long sentences he uses, sometimes run-on sentences. Paul's letters are hard to understand, and ignorant and unstable over the years have twisted his letters. Rhetoric was very popular in antiquity. And what is rhetoric? If we look it up in the dictionary, it's the art of persuasive, effective, persuasive speaking or writing, especially the use of figures or speech and other compositional techniques. Paul uses a simplified style of rhetoric called diatribe. The Greek philosopher Plato, who was a student of Socrates, also used the same style of rhetoric in some of his arguments. Paul often spoke as if he had a hidden interlocutor presenting questions or arguments whom he later would address. What's an interlocutor? A, an imaginary person who takes part in a dialogue or conversation. So Paul would use these concentric arguments that are sometimes resolved later in a subsequent chapter down the line. Opposing arguments may be identified that seem to contradict one another, but if you read carefully, you can determine when Paul is using one statement as a foil before presenting the true premise that he wants to advance in the argument. But remember this, a well-formed Pauline argument will usually end with the authoritative witness of sacred scripture. And that's Old Testament scripture because that's all Paul had. At least 70 or more Old Testament scriptures are referenced in Romans alone by St. Paul. Now, people often try to proof text from St. Paul's letters. What's a proof text? It's a one-liner. It's a single line of scripture that you take out of context. Here's the dictionary definition. Using isolated, out-of-context quotations to introduce one's own presupposition, agenda, or bias. And such quotes may not accurately reflect the author's original intent when the document is read as a whole. This happens with Paul's letters all the time. People proof text them, and you can't legitimately proof text from diatribe rhetoric. Taking a one-liner, you may only be taking one half of Paul's diatribe argument. 
And so Peter's right. There are things in Paul's letters that make them very hard to understand and the ignorant and unstable do twist them to their own destruction. Let's talk again about the Roman Empire at the time in which Paul lived. There was an extremely heavy tax burden. The Jews were paying a tax to the Roman Empire. The Jews were paying a national tax to Israel and the Jews were paying a temple tax for the upkeep and reconstruction of the temple. So a very, very heavy tax burden crushing the people. You see tax collectors in the New Testament, like Matthew, one of the apostles who was a Jew and collecting taxes for Rome, or Zacchaeus, who was a Jew and collecting taxes for the Roman Empire. Why so many taxes? Well, in Israel, Herod wanted a palace in Jerusalem, a a very elaborate palace. Herod also wanted a palace at Masada in the Judean desert near the Dead Sea. Herod also wanted a palace that he calls the Herodium. It was a hill raised to greater height and and shaped off. He wanted it shaped in the roundness of a woman's breast. The The Promontory Palace, that was one of his favorite ones on a promontory point in the Mediterranean Sea. And he made this in Romanesque style. He loved all things Roman in a villa style with courtyards and baths and colonnades and pools. This promontory palace became famous as the official resident for Roman governors, among them Pontius Pilate when he visited Israel. Caesarea Maritima Israel was a new Roman capital city in Israel under Herod the Great. This is the world and the world history that St. Paul lived in. Before Herod the Great became king of Judea, Herod supported Mark Anthony and the Egyptian queen Cleopatra. Octavian Caesar, also known as Emperor Augustus, defeated Mark Anthony. And so Herod shifts his alliance from Anthony and Cleopatra to Augustus Caesar. And in return, Augustus allows Herod the Great to rule Judea from 30 years before Christ until his death in 4 BC. So when Herod shifts alliance, his kingdom gets enlarged by Augustus. And Augustus gives him the ruins of Stratton Pyros. That was an old, beautiful Phoenician town where Herod began to build his new capital in 22 BC. And he named it Caesarea after Caesar, Caesar Augustus, in honor of the great Roman emperor. So a great Roman city is built in Israel, the promised land. So Herod the Great is really buttering up the Roman Empire, Caesarea Maritima. And a recent discovery in 1961, the Pilot Stone was discovered. This is a stone with the inscription of Pontius Pilate on it and his ruling years from 26 to 36 AD. Pontius Pilate was the prefect ruling the province, the Roman province of Judea, when Christ was crucified. Herod wanted both Greeks and Romans to fill at home in Israel. He built a large hippodrome. It was a huge U-shape, 10,000 seats, 12 rows where Romans could have horse races and special events and games. And the Roman Jewish historian Josephus tells about an event that happened at this very site. The Jewish citizens from Jerusalem were offended because Pilate had put military flags of Caesar Tiberius in Jerusalem. The Jews had a sitting protest at Pilate's house for five days in order to remove the flags. On the sixth day, Pilate collected the Jews in this site in the Hippodrome and threatened to kill them unless they accepted the display of these military insignia. On the next day, Pilate sat on his tribunal in this stadium and eventually he had to back off. He removed the flags to defuse the explosive situation in Israel. Why? He wanted to keep Pax Romana. He wanted to keep his job. His job was to keep Roman peace in the empire. Also, Herod. Herod, because he wanted to be such a 
Hellenized, Romanized king. He built many things to patron the arts and to build great cities. He built a Roman capital city and he knew it needed a Roman theater. He also added an additional amphitheater for the pleasure of the citizens. Shows and concerts are still held there today because of the incredible acoustics. High on a rock overlooking the harbor, guess what Herod built? The Temple of Augustus. King Herod in Israel built a Greek style large temple, one of the largest at the time, and names it the Temple of Augustus, Caesar Augustus. Herod is introducing the imperial cult to the land of Israel, the promised land. He names this city after his patron. He builds a temple for his patron, Emperor Augustus, and he dramatically announces his loyalty to the Roman emperor. Remember, Herod is an Edomite from Esau's line. He's not only king of the Jewish people, many Greeks and Samaritans and Roman soldiers and other Hellenized people live in Israel. So he's trying to keep everybody happy, building in Greco-Roman style in contrast to Jerusalem. And in this way, his Hellenized subjects could feel right at home, as could the Romans. He provided a Hellenized and a Romanized way of life. He is not only a Jewish king. The first Roman Gentiles would come into the Christian church right here at Caesarea Maritima. You remember the story of St. Peter when Cornelius, the Roman centurion known in the Italian cohort. He's an upright, God-fearing Roman man spoken of highly by the Jewish nation. He's residing up in Caesarea where Peter is in Joppa, a little further south, staying on the roof of Tanner, Simon the Tanner. Uh, you remember he has the vision of the food and there's nothing unclean. Peter, take and eat. There's no partiality in God. You can go to Caesarea and he hears about the, the vision and he knows. He knows that he is to baptize Cornelius and his entire household and the first Roman Gentiles enter the church there at Caesarea. Cornelius is baptized. So this new Roman city in Israel becomes a major seaport, large warehouses to store Israel's goods and treasures for exportation in this magnificent harbor. Caesarea also had a real famous aqueduct to the north of the city, 10 miles long, supplied gardens with water and fountains, and it's mentioned by Josephus and praised. Also, a, an elaborate sewer, sewer system under this city where the Mediterranean Sea would come and flush the sewage out and clean it. It was is quite an architectural feat. The Romans had constructed numerous aqueducts throughout the empire to bring water from distant sources into the towns and cities. This was an incredible architectural feat, engineering feat. These aqueducts supplied water for public baths. Remember public baths? I'm going to talk about them in a minute. But latrines were new, fountains, and private households. Paul is writing to the Romans from the Greek city of Corinth that's now been Romanized. He's writing in 57 AD, and in 58 AD, the apostle Paul was accused of inciting a riot. He's sent to Caesarea to stand trial before the Roman governor there. That governor's name is Festus. He is there in Caesarea. Paul is being kept at Caesarea, and uh, this is the place where that happened, that event. Governor Festus wanted to hear Paul's case, but he offered Paul could go to Jerusalem, but he said no. 
I appeal to Caesar. And if he wouldn't have done that, who knows? But as a Roman citizen, Paul requested to be heard by Emperor Caesar in Rome. And so from Caesarea, he will sail to Rome. Later in Acts 26, they said to one another, this man Paul is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. Agrippa said to Governor Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. But Paul did. And Paul will be under house arrest in Rome. He'll wait at least two years before his trial. And there, nothing can shut him down. He will preach the euangelion, the good news to the Romans, whoever will come to listen. Herod the Great had also built a cave for the patriarchs. Over the cave of the patriarchs, he had built a great structure in Hebron, Israel. You'll remember from Genesis when Sarah died, when she was 127 years old in the land of Hebron, in the land of Canaan, Abraham mourned her death and bought a piece of the promised land from Ephron the Hittite, uh, paying top dollar, 400 shekels of silver, fair and square. The cave of the patriarchs was covered over with this elaborate structure by Herod the Great, housing the tombs of Abraham and his love Sarah, Isaac, and his love Rebecca, and Jacob, and his first of four wives, Leah. Oh, yes. The other thing Herod was working on was the reconstruction of the holy city of Jerusalem and the temple. Herod had reconstructed. They'd been working on it for years. The temple of God was now called the temple of Herod. And John 2 tells us a little information about it. They had been working for over 46 years to build this temple. And Jesus says, destroy it. I'll raise it up in three days. Well, they know after the falling of the Holy Spirit that the temple he spoke of was his body. But that's the temple that Herod was building at this time. It will later be destroyed in 70 AD by no other than the Romans. As impressive as all these building projects are, these cities, these aqueducts, this, the sea travel, the trade, what was really amazing were the Roman roads, and they still stand to this day. Most of the originals are made of smashed flint and gravel with service of paving stones to prevent flooding, and the antage goes, all roads lead to Rome. They made an elaborate system under Caesar Augustus. He erected a monument in 20 BC in the Roman Forum. He named it the Malarium Arium, and that was called the Golden Milestone, symbolizing this structure. But this stone was the starting point to the Roman road system that led to the rest of Italy. And all roads were considered to begin at this monument and all distances in the Roman Empire were measured relative to this stone. So all roads really did lead to Rome. In fact, the Romans invented the first odometer. It was a chariot with large wheels that turned 400 times for each mile so they could mark distance. So getting from A to B in Rome became much easier as this elaborate system of roads crisscrossed the empire. In enabling the Roman legions to be dispatched at any time all throughout the empire, but also enabling the Yuan Galleon, the good news to travel swiftly by foot. The Yuan Galleon, first taken from the Great Commission to the ends of the earth by the apostles. But the Caesars had a Yuan Galleon too, tiding of salvation, a gospel of good news to be heralded throughout the expanse of the Roman Empire. The Yuan Galleon, the good news of salvation from a little g-god, from a son of God, because you see the Roman empires declared themselves gods. The first, potumiously, Julius Caesar was declared a god, as was his adopted son, Octavian Augustus Caesar, son of 
God, followed by Siberia, uh, Caesar Tiberius, also proclaimed a God, and so on and so on and so on, the imperial cult began. The imperial cult was the fastest religion in the known world, each emperor being declared a God or son of God, the Roman heralds proclaiming the euangelion, the good news of salvation throughout the empire, <laughs> keeping peace for Rome, prince of peace, son of gods, the emperor, little g-god, had good news for the people, the son of God, the prince of peace, the next in line would keep peace for Ramona, Pax Ramona, but it'll cost you, and it'll cost you a lot. It'll cost you a lot of taxes. Now, like today in our national government, we too pay a lot of taxes. Each political party and each candidate has a different message of good news, a different plan of salvation for the country, a different Yuan Galleon, if you will. Caesar Nero had a Yuan Galleon at the time that St. Paul lived, and Nero's gospel did not match up with St. Paul's gospel, and Nero Nero would be the one to silence Paul for good. He would try anyway. We still read his letters to this day, but it was under Nero's reign in Rome, Italy, around 62 to 64 AD, where Paul of Tarsus was beheaded and buried. Did Paul have a rough job spreading that euangelion throughout the empire? He says this, I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has wrought through me to win obedience from the Gentiles by word and deed, by power of signs and wonders, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, so that from Jerusalem as far around as Elycrium I have fully preached the gospel of Christ and thus made it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on another man's foundation. But as it is written, they shall see who have never been told of him, and they shall understand who have never heard of him. You see, Paul's plan was to go to Spain, but he will do it by way of Rome. He says, this is the reason why I've so often been hindered from coming to you. But now I no longer have any room for work in these regions. And since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain. I will be sped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. So Paul at the arrow number one from Tarsus is going to go all the way across the expanse of the Roman Empire. He wants to get to the far western edge, known edge of the world, which is Spain. But Italy is right in the middle. Rome is right in the middle. There's already a church established at Rome. And Paul likes to go where people have not heard the gospel. Did he have a tough job doing that? Did he have any uphill battles, any challenges? Here's his own words. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I know, I know I sound like a madman, but I have served him far more. I have worked harder, been put in prison more often, been whipped times without number, and faced death again and again. Five different times the Jewish leaders gave me 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Once I spent a whole night and a day at sea. I have traveled on many long journeys. I have faced danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, as well as danger from the Gentiles. I have faced danger in the cities and on the deserts and in the seas. I have faced danger from men who claim to be believers, but were not. I have worked hard and long and during many sleepless nights. I've been hungry and thirsty. I've gone without food. I have shivered in the cold without enough clothing to keep me warm. Then besides all this, I have the daily concern, the burden for my churches. Who was weak without my feeling that weakness? Who was led astray and I do not burn with anger? If I must boast, I would rather boast about the things that show how weak I am. God, the Father of our Lord Jesus, who is worthy of eternal praise, knows I am not lying. When I was in Damascus, the governor under King Ertas kept guards at the city gates to catch me. I had to be lowered in a basket through the window in the city wall to escape from him. 
So folks, I ask you, did Paul have a rough job spreading the Galleon across the entire Roman Empire? Yes, Paul had a few challenges and he didn't have Zoom. He didn't have Zoom, but we do. One more important fact for understanding Paul's letter to the Romans, and this is really, really important, so really listen hard, the Edict of Emperor Claudius. Historical evidence shows that Jewish migrants had settled in Rome, Italy as early as the second century before Jesus Christ. But by the middle of the first century AD, there could have been as many as 50,000 Jews in Rome. The Edict of Emperor Claudius is important. There was an expulsion of the Jews by Roman Emperor Claudius. He was in office from 41 to 54. This appears in the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 18. So you have these Caesars, Julius, then Augustus, Tiberius, Caligula, Claudius. At the time of Claudius, it's in Acts 18, Paul left Athens. He went to Corinth. He found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, lately come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. Why? Because Emperor Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. It's the expulsion, the edict of Claudius. They are kicked out. Jewish Christians are kicked out of Rome under this emperor. It's in Acts 18. It's in the writings of the Roman historian Suetonius. It's in the writings of Cassius Deo. It's in the writings of a Roman priest named Paulus Orsius. He was a student and a historian, a student of Augustine of Hippo. There were at least two expulsions of Jews from Rome before this edict. In 139 BC, Jews were expelled because they were Judaizing among the local Gentiles. Again, in 13 AD under Caesar Tiberius, once again, Jews were expelled expelled from Rome for similar reasons, aggressive Judaizing, trying to proselytize, trying to convert too hard. Suetonius wrote a brief statement. It's called Divus Claudius 25. He mentions agitations caused by the Jews, which Claudius decided to expel all Jews from Rome since the Jews constantly made disturbances at the instigation of Christos, Jesus Christ. He, the Emperor Claudius, expelled them from Rome. It's called the Emperor of Claudius's Edict, and it's very, very important to wrap your mind around this. He dies in 54 AD. Think about this. With the Jewish Christians expelled out of Rome, only the Roman Christians are left behind to keep the church growing there. And in the absence of these Jewish Christians, the Roman Christians become the central church leadership in Rome. Some of the ancient Romans who converted don't know the Hebrew scriptures, of which Jesus Christ is the fulfillment. Some of the Romans still practice their own feast days, their celebrations, their customs. They have their own pantheon of little g gods that they had adopted from the Greeks. Remember all those Greek gods had received Roman names? They had, oh, they had the baths. They had the aqueducts that brought in water into Rome. This was really big at this time in Roman history. Public bathing had come into vogue. Rome was famous for its public baths. They first developed around the second century before Christ. And in 25 BC, Agrippa, a chief deputy under Augustus, designed and built the first therma, a large extensive bath system. And the Roman emperors that followed kept increasingly making them larger and larger and more and more. And the motto became the Cleanliness is next to godliness. So the Baths of Diocletian, the Baths of Caracalla, there was a 27-acre complex. It took 9,000 laborers five years to complete, and they exemplified the Romans' devotion to public bathing. There were grounds and sports fields and Olympic-sized swimming pools, gardens, fountains, a four-story bathhouse, a common 
accommodating 1,600 people at one time. We see mosaics of athletes in the Vatican museums. These come from the Roman baths. We see floor plans and, and what it must have been like. We can read that the interior walls were adorned with mosaics and gilded carvings and hundreds of alcoves for statuary. There was a hypocost, literally means a fire underneath to warm the tiled floors, to heat the tub waters. 50 furnaces burned 10 tons of wood daily to heat the baths. There were massage rooms and saunas and perfumeries and a hair salon. And on a typical day in ancient Rome, a tintabulum would ring like a bell to summon men and women to the afternoon baths. And mixed gender bathing was common initially. And later, single sex bathing became vogue as well. Now, entry fees to the baths were very low or free, so the poor people could bathe too. The bathers could soak in a warm tepidarium or a hot caladarium, or they could be dipped into a freezing frigidarium, and there would be jugglers and acrobats and musicians and poets and vendors selling wine and pretzels and cake and eels and quail eggs. And you could even hire a depilator to pluck unwanted hair or to oil, sand, and scrape your skin. We still find the tools, the bronze strigals used, a tool for scraping the body, scraping the dirt, the perspiration, the oil that was applied in the ancient Roman baths. Why am I telling you this? Listen to what Seneca He's a first century Rome, Italy, Stoic philosopher. Listen what he said about the Roman baths and bathhouses. All this bustle created a cacophony. It could make you hate your own ears. Musclemen pumping weights, emitting squeaking, squealing sounds. Masseuses slapped flesh. Pickpockets were noisily arrested. And bathers yelped from having hair yanked from their armpits. Sausage sellers and pastry bakers and barmen cried their wares. And there was always a man who liked to hear himself singing in the bath. Aside from giving him headaches, Seneca believed that communal bathing inspired sexual licentiousness and moral delinquency, sexual licentiousness and moral delinquency in the first century when these Roman bathhouses were created. They were designed for voluptuous delights of the flesh. In Roman mythology, Voluptus was the daughter born of the union of Cupid and Psyche, and she was found in the company of the three graces, the Grazia, and she is known as the goddess of sensual pleasure and sensual delight. There was also the Epicureans. Uh, after the Greek philosopher, there were Roman followers of Epicurus, and that main theme of that argued that pleasure was the chief good in life. And so erotic frescoes depicting people having sensual pleasure and graphic detail, an epigram to the entrance of the bath of Carcalla in Rome this day. We can still read baths, wine, and sex spoil our bodies, but baths, wine, and sex make up life. Brothels were common, explicit pictures of services offered, usually located near the Roman bathhouses. So just think in your mind what Rome was like, and then compare and contrast. You have Jews coming in. So you have two cultures, extremely different, Jews and Romans. The Jews have a very strict moral code, the Ten Commandments written by the finger of God. They have 613 mitzvah laws, which were more and more Jewish rules, fences around the law. Leviticus 18 alone had a very strict sexual code of conduct. The Romans had no strict moral code. Maybe one reason that Paul begins this letter to the Romans by addressing the homosexual act that were so thriving in the bathhouses. Paul was writing from a Romanized city, Corinth, that was like a Las Vegas today. What happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. But 
while in Rome, do as the Romans do. Cleanliness was not next to big G godliness at the Roman bathhouses. And many of those early Christians rejected the idea of public bathing. And some Christians practice alusia, the state of being unwashed. We read that St. Agnes, virgin martyr, never ever bathed. So Paul says in his final instructions, I appeal to you, brethren, to take note of those who create dissensions and difficulties in opposition to the doctrine which you have been taught. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own appetites. By fair and flattering words, they deceive the hearts of the simple-minded. For while your obedience, this is a main theme, your obedience is known to all. I rejoice over you. I would have you wise as to what is good and guileless as to what is evil. Then the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. That was part one of Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter one, on Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. To learn more about Seeking Truth Bible Studies, visit SeekingTruth.net. Tune in next time for more Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran.